Welcome back to the Yips Podcast. I'm Jack Craig. This is a biographical sports history podcast. Every week, I will exhaustively research and discuss in detail some of the most interesting individuals in sports history with my good friend, Davin Rozovsky. If you're interested in learning more about a certain fascinating athlete and hearing it discussed on this podcast, you can email us at theipspodcast at gmail.com, comment on the Yips Podcast Facebook page, or tweet us at the Yips Podcast. On the Yips Podcast, you may hear offensive language and themes that may not be suitable for children. If you're easily offended by quotes from athletes of the past that may be politically incorrect by today's standards, this podcast may not be for you. All right, Devin, let's get started. Welcome back. This is episode 26. 26. Yeah. Wow. We're working our way up there. Davin, let's kick things off. Yip of the week. You want to go first? All right. Yeah, I'll do a March Madness yip since we're still in that time of year and might as okay. well take advantage of it. My yip goes out to the uh, Duke-Kansas basketball game okay. where Duke lost in overtime 85-81. Your Duke Blue Devils. Yeah, right. <laughs> and my yip goes to uh, their offense to Gray Man's son, Grayson Allen, who went three for 13, Ooh. two for nine from three. Yeah. And attempted as many threes as Marvin Bagley did shots. Hmm. Bagley was five for nine from gotcha. the field. So I feel like that had a big impact on them losing the game, not working the inside yeah. in the paint against yeah. Kansas. And, and he could have won it in regulation. He missed a, a game-winning yeah. shot at the end of regulation. Yeah, so. They almost went in twice. but So he really uh, did not have his best of days. Yeah, and, there you go, uh, Grayson Allen. Great way to wrap up a, a career at Duke and now beat it because you're probably not going to be that great of an NBA player. Yeah, so there we go. Yeah, what a shame. Grayson Allen Duke and Duke. Losing. Hey, well, I'm still in it for money, so I'm I'm happy. Yeah, so okay. you know, I'll I'll take I'll take the Duke loss, and I like Kansas too. Yeah, with the potential to make some money on on this. Well, there you go. It's good to have a good bracket. Uh, Davin, my yip of the week is not about a athlete. Someone, well, hey, someone, hey, that, hey, someone hey. that used to be an athlete. Basically, I somehow strained my neck while sleeping <laughs> two nights ago, and now I pretty much can't move my neck. You were at having all. dreams of ski jumping. I, I, I guess. <laughs> I, I think it takes a really unathletic person to get injured, injured while sleeping. While sleeping, which is the laziest thing you can do. So, I, credit to myself. I'm yeah, getting I, old. I, I'd say so. Know? Yeah, getting up there in age, you know. Yeah, your your clock's ticking. Yeah, I gotta I gotta get a better pillow. I think is the. You should get a MyPillow. That's what I need. That's (laughs) what I need. All right. Well, that's it for Yips of the Week. So we'll get into this week's episode. It is on David Walther. Walther, huh? Walther. It's an interesting last name. He was born on November 22nd, 1947 to parents Patricia Strader Walther and George Walther Jr. in Dayton, Ohio. Ooh, Dayton. However, the family story really starts with David's grandfather, who was George Walther Sr., okay? Is it possible that it was Walt Hare? It could have been. He was German. Uh, I don't know. Is that how you pronounce it? Walter. Walter, yeah. George Walther Sr. came to Dayton, Ohio from Germany when he was only 16 years old to live with his uncle. He trained as (laughs) an apprentice iron molder and enjoyed bicycling. Okay. Union guy, I'm sure. What? Big union guy. Big union guy, yeah. Iron Workers of America. Yeah. He went back to Germany and finished technical school after he graduated from high school. When he came back to America, he went all across the Mid-Atlantic and Midwest, touring iron foundries and learning from the oldest men at each. 
Hmm. So he's like, he knows this is right, what he wants to do. That's his profession. Yep. That's, that's what he's doing, and he's learning all he could learn. Yeah. Eventually, he opened Dayton Steel Foundry in 1905. He was early to market and developed steel wheels and secured various patents on the designs. Okay. With the advent of the automobile, he was in a position to own the market, Mm -hmm. right? He secured a contract with the U.S. Army to produce the wheels for all the supply trucks after basically winning a wheel-off with other manufacturers. Nice. So basically, the U.S. Army brought in all these manufacturers of wheels and was like, okay... Like, let's, let's do some stress tests. Let's see how they all work. Yeah, they showed up and they said, we'll have a competition, <laughs> yeah, competition <right>. now. <laughs> It'll go around and around. Uh, as it turned out, his five-spoke steel wheel design performed better than all the other competition under stress tests. And those the competition, they were all even numbers and symmetrical. Whereas, his, I mean, I guess five-point could still be symmetrical. Mm-hmm. But he had an odd number of spokes. Yeah. And that actually... And that provided the most support. Exactly. Exactly. So at this point, the tires that are on wheels are just solid rubber. They're not inflated. They were square too, right? No. (laughs) Square wheels. So his business booms during the war, during World War I, and he invests his profits back into the business. Eventually, he works with Firestone to develop pneumatic tires, which means air-filled. They weren't air-filled before? No, they were just solid rubber Okay. That went around the wheel. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So he patents his new design, and he also built improved brake drums and patented those. So he develops the best wheel, brake, and tire Okay. for cars. This guy's a pretty pretty intelligent fella. Yeah, as he's going into the 1920s when cars start being bought by consumers, right? Not just the right. army and stuff like right. that. And he makes a fortune. He also developed fifth wheels and landing legs for the trucking industry. Do you know what a fifth wheel is? So the fifth wheel... I know what it I'm is. I'm pretty I'm sure... Trucking. Right? So you have the like semi that drives the trailer, right? Correct. And the fifth wheel is where it connects Where the trailer hooks into the tractor. Yeah. The, yep. On the front bottom of the trailer and on the back top yep. of the semi, right? Yep. Okay. So, well, the fifth wheel is on the tractor. It's part of the tractor. Oh, okay. So the trailer hooks into the fifth wheel and that's right. how, it, how it connects. Yeah. And it's... So a little it allows joke you that, to turn better, right? I mean, that's just how the thing connects to, yeah, the, yeah. to, to the trailer. Or the truck to the trailer. Gotcha. So a little uh, joke that we had in the transportation industry when people would be like new, like people starting new when I was at J.B. Hunt. Yeah. You know, we'd be teaching them about the goings on of, of, you know, what happens there. And we'd be like, all right, go check out the fifth wheel. And it would be like, oh, wait, which one is, which one's the fifth one? Cause, yeah, because, well, and technically on most semis now, there's like, what, eight or uh, six? Actual wheels? Is like it six? ten, I think. Ten? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ten, ten you don't count well, the ones it's, on it's, the trailer. It's either ten or six. Okay. Depending if it's a dual axle or if it's a single axle. Okay. So yeah. but like things that are pulling heavy stuff is yeah, yeah. usually ten. Yeah, when I was in baseball, the the running joke was, uh, you know, to go find a left-handed bat or go get me the keys to the batter box. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Same type things, of deal. Things like that. So basically this guy developed all of the technology that made cars what they are today. Okay. He was on the forefront of it. So eventually his oldest son, so George Walther Sr.'s oldest son, George Jr., took over as CEO and chairman of Dayton Walther Corp., which was the company. And uh, George Jr. marries Patricia Strader, and they had David Walther, yep. who's the subject of our story. So we're back to David, and now you know his family history. As you might imagine, he grew up extremely rich. He's basically like a baron of yeah. Day- Dayton, Ohio, oh, yeah. right? These, these folks have some money. Yeah. 
Growing up, David was one of three boys, as the family business on his dad's side was auto parts, and his mom had grown up working on cars with her dad in Kentucky, where she developed a need for speed. With car parts and speed in his blood, David was into racing anything at an early age. Actually, it wasn't only David. His brothers were drivers of some sort as well Mm -hmm. as they grew up. So David's growing up, and at first, he's racing sprint and midget cars. So sprint and midget cars, they're kind of these like wedge-shaped cars. They kind of look like a go-kart. Okay. And they have... Is the midget cart smaller? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a midget. Right. That's what kids who want to be auto racers are racing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Um, Here, I'll show you a picture real quick. They kind of look like RC remote control cars, right? I had a midget at my college. His name was Jimmy. Okay. So I was out like a couple years after graduating college, out with some college people who obviously knew who this kid was because he was the only midget at college. Little person. Uh, Yeah. And so like jokingly, I was like, hey, Jimmy. And it turned out to actually be him. Oh, you thought it was just I thought it was just a regular, like just a random midget that happened to be at the bar. And it turned out to actually be him. And he like turned around and I was like, hey, what's up, man? I had a boss that was a little person. Yeah? Yeah. How little was he? Uh, he was probably like three foot ten. Oh, okay. He was under four feet for yeah. sure, though. So, David's got the need for speed, right? At an early age. And growing up, he's racing sprint and midget cars. You know, I just showed little you a picture cars. of those. Yeah. What's funny is I wonder if a midget car is unacceptable and politically. Why is midget an unacceptable word? It it doesn't sound insulting. I don't know. It just carries a bad connotation for some reason. Yeah. I don't know. So sprint cars are raced on dirt and sometimes on cement tracks, but mostly dirt. Mm -hmm. And he's also racing hydroplanes. Okay. Do you know what hydroplanes are? I know what hydroplaning is. It's like when you go over the water, right? Yeah. Is that similar to what these cars are? Yeah. 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 So hydroplanes are basically they're these oh, boats they're like race that are, cars on the yeah, ocean. they're race cars on on, on water. water. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I've never seen those before, but that's cool. Yeah, so he's he's racing those as well as he's kind of growing up. Racing hydroplanes is where David was given a nickname that would that he would embrace for the rest of his life. One of his childhood classmates started calling him due to his love of racing hydroplanes, Salt, and the name stuck. So his name is Salt Wather. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. They made a movie about him. Angelina Jolie played him. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie Salt. The movie Salt. Uh, salt Wather. So his name's Salt Wather. That's hilarious. He, at this point, is pretty focused, and he knows he wants to be a professional driver of some kind. He's doing the sprint car racing. He's doing the hydroplane racing. And his, uh, his father, George Jr., just so happens to be a race car owner. Right, because they're loaded. Because they're loaded, right? And he began taking cars to the Indy 500 in 1955. Okay. Salt grew up from age eight on going to the Indy 500 from Mm -hmm. Dayton and seeing his dad's race team, you know, compete. After racing hydroplanes and sprint cars for the better part of his teenage years and his early 20s, Salt finally got his first shot at a high-profile race as he starts to focus more on racing cars than hydroplanes. He entered the 1970 USAC Champ Car Series race, driving for a team that was owned by his father. Okay, I was going to ask that. Was, <laughs> was it his dad's team? Yeah. USAC stands for United States Auto Club. Okay. And it uh, featured what I think we would call indie cars. So it's open wheel cars, mm-hmm. right? So not like NASCAR. So back then, we'll, we'll put a picture up on Instagram or something, but back then indie cars were yeah, seen, a little smaller than they, than they are now. Right, so now they're they're much 
you know, much bigger. They kind of look like a, a soapbox derby car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back then, there was a lot less protection for the driver. Okay. In Salt's very first serious professional race, the 1970 USAC Champ Car Series race, he started in eighth place based on his qualifying. So, right, in racing, you do qualifying, and then based on the right. qualifying, that's your starting position. The race would be 100 laps. However, Salt crashed and totaled his car on only the 27th lap. Oh, I was hoping it will be so earlier. So his first race doesn't go great. Also, back then, all races, even NASCAR and stuff too, so much more of the field did not finish the race. Yeah. It'd be like I mean, a now third a fair of amount doesn't finish, but would, I think it's a couple. I guess I don't really pay attention to NASCAR, but I assume. Yeah. Like I you mean, see crashes every time they put it on SportsCenter. Yeah. Back then, cars would just fail. Each team didn't have yeah. as much money as they do today. And okay. it, wasn't, it wasn't all figured out. It was still like evolving mm-hmm. and stuff. So the next season, 1971, uh, Salt qualifies for three races while racing in his Ford for his dad's race group. He finished in 15th, 11th, and 20th in those races. So he's improving. Yeah. You know? I mean, he's finishing, which yeah, yeah. puts him ahead of a third of the field. Yeah. So Salt works his way through competition in the USAC. In 1972, he earns his way to qualifying for 10 races, including the Indianapolis 500. Mm-hmm. He finishes the race without crashing, but he ended up finishing 33rd out of 33 cars that crossed the finish line. So, not well. Dead last. However, he did earn $14,538 for his last place finish. Not that he needed it. Yeah. So, the Indy 500 usually has 33 cars in it because the starting position is basically 11 rows of cars. And there's three cars per row. Okay. And what they do in IndyCar racing and at the Indianapolis 500 is instead of just starting from a stop, you maintain those positions as you go around the track and then and it you like get up ding, to speed. Ding, ding. Yep. And then when you come around for the start of the race, so that's that's called parading the cars. Oh, okay. And uh, when you're ready to start the race, there's some usually celebrity with a green flag who waves the green flag, and that's the real start of the race. Okay, okay? it's like the arena football of race starts. Yeah, exactly. You, you know what I'm talking yeah, about, yeah, yeah, where yeah. the wide receivers do the run up yeah, to the line, they run around, and then go through. Yeah, it's awesome. I love the that. Hike. Yeah, Salt fared a little better in the other races that year uh, than the Indy 500, though he didn't win any. Um, But he did have two top 10 finishes, including a sixth place finish at the Ontario Motor Speedway in California and eighth place at Pocono Raceway. So he's not a bad driver. So he's improving. This is only his second year, too. So question. Yeah. Do you feel that car racing is a sport? I don't know. I mean, it's certainly a skill. Right. It's it's definitely definitely a skill. I just feel there is an endurance factor. Is there any athletic ability, ability involved in racing a car? I think so. You think? Yeah, I think there's athletic ability for sure. It's hand-eye coordination. And I guess, yeah. You don't you don't see super fat race car drivers. They're well, because pretty... they weigh down the car. Well, no, but you're all... They're and all... imagine fitting a fat race car driver in a midget car. Like, it just wouldn't happen. I, th- I would be willing to say that the average race car driver is more athletically fit than the average baseball player. Okay. All right. So you so you're going with yes, it is a sport. I'll say it's a sport. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm against that stance. Okay. But I guess it's on Sports Center, so like someone thinks it's a sport. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. I do just you think feel golf's like a sport. I do, but I'm like on the borderline. Okay. That's a big debate, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big debate. I don't really have an argument for it or against it, but it's a debate that happens a lot. Yeah. Is golf a sport? Yeah. But I, I think it is because I think that takes like legitimate athletic ability to be good at. Yeah. So the hand-eye coordination thing, though, that's also also in race car driving. If you use that aspect, right. as your 
so in 1973, he's 25 years old, and he's catching flack from all the other race car drivers because he's he's racing with daddy's money, mm-hmm. right? He's on his right. dad's race team. He's right, they're like, oh, you kid. wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for... Exactly. And all the other drivers saw themselves as like having to pay their dues on their way up. They probably worked as part of a pit crew mm-hmm. for most of their time before they got to be a driver. Mm-hmm. And, and um, he was just handed the keys. Yeah, exactly. So in his first race of the year for 1973, he finished 16th out of 25 cars at College Station in Texas. The second race of the year was in Trenton, New Jersey. He, he had qualified to start in 11th place. But on only the 13th lap out of 100, he crashed and couldn't finish the race. He walked away from the crash, though, which was good because the next race would be the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in the Indy 500, like I said, you usually get a rolling start, right? You go around a couple times and then a person comes out with a green flag to, to get the race started. So Salt starts in 17th place. Okay. I'm going to show you a video here and I'll, I'll include this call. Do you know which one's him? Oh, wow, we. That is fire. Oh, Jesus. He had just barely passed the starting line. So right. They'll show it. You'll see another replay. That happened, like, instantly. Yeah. <laughs> that guy running around reminded me of Ricky Bobby. Yeah, he's <laughs> I'm on fire. Ricky Bobby, you're not on fire. Those explosions are not cars. Those are the bombs so here, here comes, they'll show a reverse angle replay. There is a report already that there may be spectators hurt. Not confirmed. The wire fence right here on the straightaway was ripped apart. It was very fortunate that a car did not come into the crowd because one of the standards holding up the wire screen has also been broken in half. Oh, wow. And no spectators were injured. Part of the grandstand, we almost had an automobile go into the crowd. Luckily, the cables of the fence held, and apparently spectators were drenched in fuel, but because the car didn't fly into the stands, which it's amazing it didn't break the fence, Right. no one was, I mean, some people were injured, but no one was, Right. You know, nobody lost their lives. Right. Right there, and look at this. Incredible explosion, fuel spraying out over the spectators in the first few rows. That could mean real trouble. Another explosion, and like a pinwheel or a garden sprinkler, all the fuel is being sprayed out of the car. That could be a good thing for the driver if he has survived this crash. Car upside down. So what happens is he veers right. And hits someone. And hits somebody and flies up into the air. Salt would maintain that Look he at all was, that smoke and stuff. That how, like, how did it burst into flames like that? I mean, because it, Just hit, from the it, impact. it hit a fence going 100 miles an hour or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. So as the field received the green flag, Steve Krisiloff, on the inside of the third row, so two salts left, developed engine trouble and slowed down, which produced a traffic jam on the main straightaway as the rest of the cars accelerated. Walther forced to his right by drivers taking evasive action in front of him. So he touched wheels with Jerry Grant. Who so it was wasn't on really his, right. his fault. 
It was this well, other he guy's says, fault. He says that it's not his fault. So he veers right into Jerry Grant, and it catapults him up into the wall and into the fence above it. Walters maintained that he was hit from behind, forcing him into Grant, but the claim is not supported by films of the crash and is widely not accepted by the other drivers. Okay. So but, they, but also, they don't like him, so they're not going right. to accept anything. He yeah, says. so what most people think is that there was something happening that everybody had to steer around and that Salt panicked yeah. and caused the crash. So the impact tore down the fence and snapped off the nose of Walter's car, exposing the driver's legs and breaking open the fuel tanks, which is why the fuel goes yeah. you know, spinning out of control and flying everywhere. And uh, the fuel immediately began spraying out of the car, some of it reaching the front row of the grandstand where several spectators suffered burns. The it's amazing that he didn't die from that. The car crashed back onto the track and spun down the main straightaway upside down. So that whole time the car is spinning. It's upside down with like basically his head right on, on the, the ground. Track. Right. Yeah. Still spraying fuel and that ignited a huge fireball that enveloped a lot of the field. Blinded by the burning men- uh, methanol, several other drivers crashed into Walther's car and each other, though none of them suffered serious injuries. Amazing. Walter's car finally stops at the entrance of turn one with the driver's legs clearly visible, sticking out of the broken nose of the car. Walter was rescued by track safety workers with the help of Wally Dallenbach Sr. and rushed to the hospital in critical condition. Walter was fortunate to have had all the fuel sprayed out of his car, allowing the fire to burn out quickly, but he still suffered burns over 40% of his body. Mm-hmm. He was trapped underneath the car for nearly six minutes as rescue workers tried to free him. Oh, so they stopped the I race. I wonder if he was conscious. I think so. I think so. So like he's just sitting there being like, I'm going to fucking die. Yeah, I'm trapped. Luckily, the fire burnt out quickly. But um, So Walter's most severe injuries were to his hands. The fingers on his left hand had to be partially amputated, and those on his crushed right hand eventually healed into un- unnatural angles. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a driver and his hands Take my up. strong hand. <laughs> so the rest of his life, he wore a black glove on his left hand to cover the damage. Uh, Walter was in the Michigan Burn Center for two and a half months and lost nearly 50 pounds wow. because of the, uh, he was on a bunch of pain medication. He's covered in burns and his hands are pretty much demolished. Yeah, wild. So as I said, Salt maintains that he was hit from behind at the start, which to me, it looks like it could have been. If he was hit on his back left, that's what would have caused the car to go right. Right. You know? But well, it's, correct. It's also, it's 1970s footage, so it's A little grainy. blurry and grainy. Yeah, you can't tell. For his injuries, Salt was put on heavy pain medication and started the process of his recovery. He was determined to get back on track and race in the following years. We'll play 19, on words there. Yeah. He wanted to get back and race in the 74 Indy 500. Okay. After recovering, he started driving again and working his way back into driving form. Despite missing half of each finger on his left hand, he claimed that he could still grip the wheel hard enough in order to drive. Mm-hmm. So basically, his his left hand, everything but the thumb, only goes to the knuckle. He's got some nubs. Yeah. So he's got nubs. But uh, in an interview that I read, somebody asked him about whether he could grip the wheel, and he just grabbed the guy's forearm with his hand hand as nubs and was like does that feel like i can grab a, a wheel still and the guy was like Funny. yeah take your hands off me take that nub <laughs> nubby hand off me so he's got the uh who is it, the guy from the giants yeah jpp hand. Yeah. yeah jpp hand so 1973 rolls into 1974 and salt got back in the driver's seat for the first time in almost a year so the indy 500 is usually in may and racing season generally starts in march so it's been 10 months mm-hmm. since the race 
In the first heat of qualifying at the Ontario, California track, he finished eighth in his heat and qualifying for the main race. In the race, though, Salt's engine failed during the race, and he completed 128 of the 200 laps, but didn't finish. But he's still back out there. But he's back, Pretty yeah. good. In his next race back in Trenton, a pit fire prevented Salt from finishing the race after only 47 of the race's 134 What laps. is a pit fire? I think it's when your car is stopped in you know, a pit in stop the pit line. Yeah, and pit stop. fire happens. Okay. Yeah. With your car or just with his in general? Car. I think with oh, his car. Okay. So, going into the Indy 500, Salt has somewhat changed the perception other drivers had had of him. Although he's still daddy's boy a little bit um, and racing for his father's team, the, he kind of won him over with his perseverance and his comeback story. Yeah. Right? They're like, all right. Like, I, okay, thought, I thought this kid was a wuss, but, I mean, he's coming back after burning off half his hands. Right. And, he's know. dedicated to this. Yeah. Although his story was a headline after the spectacular crash the year before, a Disney ending would not be in the cards for Salt. He finished only 141 of the laps before a piston problem derailed him from finishing the race. He technically finished 17th, but was most proud of his perseverance and recovery to get back into racing. Mm -hmm. So he finished 17th despite not finishing the race. Because there were so many people behind him that ended earlier. Yeah, bowed out of the race even before him. His oldest brother, Skip, who was George III. Right, you call that person Skip. Really? That's what Skip is a nickname for? Skip is for a third, yeah. Why? Skip or Trip. Uh, I don't know. I guess because there's Senior, then you skip Junior to get to the third or something. Oh, okay. Interesting. So Skip, his brother, had stuck with hydroplane racing, whereas Salt had gone into auto racing, right? Which is funny. Right, you think it'd be the opposite. Salt water would be in, uh, in the ocean. Yeah. Or in the water. So in June of 1974, Salt's brother Skip was replacing a regular driver named Jim McCormick on his team's hydroplane racing team in Miami after Jim had been injured earlier in the week while being thrown from the vehicle. Huh. Hydroplane racing goes wrong a lot. It sounds like it would. (laughs) While Skip was speeding along at roughly 150 miles an hour, the rudder of his hydroplane had broken and caused him to lose control. The boat flipped several times as it skimmed across the water. Skip was rushed to a hospital, but he was pronounced dead on arrival. Oh, hello. Some believe that Skip might have hit a manatee, which broke the rudder and caused him to crash. Huh. So let me let me show you a hydroplane race. Crash. Does this sport still exist? Yeah, I believe so. And how haven't I ever heard of it? Because it sounds amazing. The circus, circus, trying to catch up after a late start. He starts to fly. He's up in the air. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, they start going so fast. Right, as soon as they lose contact with the water, they're yeah, fine. Yeah, they just fly into the air. That is awesome. Ron Snyder is upside down in the water. Look at that one. Mind you that they are on their own breathing mechanisms in these capsules. Right, so you get the idea. Right oh, doubles. Especially if it's windy. How does both of them go? And if you're going into a headwind and there's a little bit of ripples on the lake, right? It's like a ramp. You just fly up into the air. That's awesome. That is a great sport, which I would love to go see an event. So Salt's brother passes away from hydroplane racing. Salt would later say of his brother's death, quote, Skip getting killed, that hurt because he was my best friend. At least he died doing what he wanted to, though. There are a lot of other drivers who have been hurt pretty bad. If you're a race driver, you know you can get hurt. I can go out here from the garage in the next hour and be paralyzed from the neck down. Huh. So, he, I mean, kind of a dark quote. Yeah. You know, but he's he's saying like, hey, I mean. You understand what bad. you're doing. Yeah, you know? exactly. You know the, right? you know the name you know of the, the game. risks. 
His brother's death devastated Salt. He had become dependent on painkillers following his crash, but now things had gotten even worse. He started living a playboy lifestyle more and more, where he would go out late partying and sleeping around. He would say that he grew obsessed with fast cars and faster women during this time. Can't hate fast women. (laughs) He hid his drug abuse from everyone, though, and resumed racing following his brother's death. Salt had one top 10 finish later that year in 1974 at the Trenton 300, but still had not recorded a win. I wonder if he was ever fucked up for races. I, I don't think you could be, man. I mean, that stuff is so difficult and you rely so much on your reaction True. time. Um, it just would be like the perfect thing to have for this podcast for him to like be driving in NASCAR races drunk and happen to win one and not remember it. Uh, so he also resumed powerboat racing and he had his best finished in the 1974 Dayton Hydro Globe on Eastwood Lake where he finished third. Mm. So he's racing boats and So he got cars. back into their boats. Yeah. Cool. At the 1975 Indianapolis 500, Salt finished in last place again. This earned him the rare honor of being the only driver to ever finish in last three times at the Indy 500. Goat. <laughs> yeah, right. Or Wote. Wote, worst of all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on in 1975, he tried his hand at NASCAR racing. In his four NASCAR races during 1975, 76, and 77, he finished 17th, 37th, 12th, and 24th. Over the next several years, Salt kept racing and living large. In 1977, he finished in fourth at the 1977 Trenton 200, which wound up being the best finish of his career and his only top five finish. Oh, At the 1977 Indy 500, Walther failed to qualify, but attempted to buy, at an exorbitant price, one of the qualified cars. Can you do that? I think technically. If you're rich enough? I think, yeah. I think it's kind of like, I guess if a horse qualifies for the Kentucky Derby, if you were a really rich jockey, you could be like, hey, I'm buying that horse, and now I'm the jockey on that horse. Oh, okay. The car is what wins more than the driver technically and qualifying and stuff right this plan however was later abandoned and it created a lot of uh, negative press and yeah people are probably like oh oh, rich boy rich boy over here exactly in 1978 he registered four top 10 finishes and it appeared that salt had turned a corner in his career it was also his highest earning year his lifestyle though was catching up to him in 1979 salt appeared in an episode of the dukes of hazard as a truck driver Hmm. And was on a two-part episode of The Rockford Files as a character named Vern. So he got some IMDb credits there. Yeah. By 33 years old, Salt finally retired from racing in 1981. He had only qualified for one race that season, and it was clear that things were over. Yeah, he knew he just didn't have it anymore. Yeah, Yeah. he's getting older and, you know, time to hang it up. In 1986, Salt's father, George Walther Jr., sold Dayton Walther to Toronto-based Vanity Corporation for $142.8 million. So again, Not as much as you would think, but in that time, I guess that's a ton. I mean, it's a lot of money, but... Well, I think, too, George Walther Jr. isn't quite as good at running the company as his father was. Yeah. And so I think it, you know, the company was doing on worse. On its way down. He probably sold a percentage of it for that amount and stayed on as chairman or mm-hmm. something like that. Sure. For the next several years, Salt would feed his self-destructive habits off the racetrack. He partied and grew more and more addicted to painkillers, particularly morphine. Years later, he went to rehab and he tried to make a comeback for the 1990 Indianapolis Five. So at this point, he's like 40 years old, right? In yeah, 1990? he's 43. Ah, right, 1947. Quote, I'm probably not going to get in this week, but I have total confidence in myself. If I don't make it this year, you bet I'll be back next year. I guarantee it. I want to race so bad I can taste it, said Walther before the Indy 500. 
During qualifying, it looked as if Salt would earn the final spot in the Indy 500 field. In the last 20 minutes of qualifying, Salt reached a speed of 210 miles an hour and was looking like he would be the last driver in the race. In the final eight minutes of qualifying though, Rocky Moran took to the track and reached a speed of 211 miles an hour, barely edging out Salt. Is that how qualifying is based on yeah, it's by the speed. miles per hour? Yeah, it's by I speed. I never knew that. Yeah. I thought it was based on like your qualifying lap. So you do like the qualifying lap in 11 seconds or something. No, it's all by speed. Really? Right? But that's an indicator of... Of the speed you get up to is also an indicator of how fast you... Technically, yeah, I guess. But I feel like your lower speed could be less than someone, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, if that makes true. sense. Or yeah, your yeah. average speed could be less, but your peak could be more. Right, right. So Salt Wather was the first alternate. He missed by one spot. Oh, He's man. Booted up. Close. Yeah, close, though. The next year in 1991, 43-year-old Salt, or I guess he was 42 the year before, uh, tried to qualify for the Indy 500 but failed. Uh, it would be the last time that he raced. Over the next couple decades, Salt struggled with addiction and the law. While already in jail, Walther was convicted of illegal conveyance of painkillers into the jail after trying to smuggle Tylenol tablets, which contained codeine, into oh, his jail cell. Yummy. He then failed to show for the trial as well. So <laughs> Failure got to a, appear. Yeah, so he got additional charges. During the 2000s, Salt would be in and out of jail for violating terms of his parole, fleeing and eluding his warrant, and failure to pay child support. He was a, it just sounds like, you know, your standard playboy. Yeah. Right. Like, trying to be a bad guy. He was arrested again in 2007 for speeding and leading police on a chase that went up to 100 miles an hour. Oh, okay. So still racing. Kind of baller. Salt passed away in Trotwood, Ohio on December 27th, 2012 at the age of 65. He had been a fugitive on the run from police for about five years, and he passed away shortly after being apprehended by the police. Huh. So within a couple days. It wasn't like they arrested him and he died. What did he die of? Do we know? I don't know. Yeah, I didn't say. I think it was just all that hard living. Yeah. Caught up it's just funny that, you know, it was like he got caught, got arrested finally, and then died. Could have been the withdrawal. Yeah. You know, maybe. Yeah, true. Two years later, his name popped up again posthumously, though, when a Ford GT40 was found in a garage in Southern California with his name on the side of the driver's side door underneath the window. So you know how like back in the day, race car drivers would have their name right underneath uh-huh. the window? Yeah. So they found an extremely rare car in a, you know, they, they do the garage auctions. Like, yeah. Um, and it was like in a storage, storage facility, right? Yeah, yeah, like storage space auctions. And they find this extremely rare car that has salt water yeah. on the side. The car is one of the rarest of its kind though. And it's, it's basically priceless because it's, one of only three known of that exact make and model. Mm-hmm. It was the the last four. So why did he have it? Oh, he didn't have it. It was just found, but it had his name on it. So it must have been his, no? Or someone. Probably, or somebody just really liked him or okay. something. Interesting. But yeah, that exact make and model, there were only three in the world of. And so somebody who got this, who found this garage or storage, storage space. Yeah, it's like storage you know, wars. You get to buy the storage unit exactly. without knowing what's Side in it. Unseen. And this happens to be in there. Exactly. So in an interview before he passed away, Salt had said, quote, I would rather race than do anything else in the world. Just a guy. Loves racing. Obsessed with speed, loved racing, and kind of didn't know what to do with himself after he wasn't in racing anymore. Right, yeah, and really struggled, it sounds like. Yeah, I think, too, his brother's death kind of triggered the downward spiral. Right, right, because that's when he started to get addicted to the the painkillers and everything like that. Yeah. So, I don't know. We hadn't done a NASCAR guy yet. I'd never heard of this guy. New sport, and I use that term lightly or loosely. And maybe best name of somebody. Saltwater. Saltwater. It's a good good nickname. I like it. Yeah. 
So we'll be back next week with another episode of the Ips Podcast. Make sure to check out our social channels at the Ips Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and uh, the Ips Podcast on Facebook. Make sure to check your your Facebook settings too. All this stuff in the news about Facebook. Uh, oh, yeah, getting hacked and everything. And everything. I feel like that yeah. comes up like every two years. Well, that go into your settings, set some things to private. Don't let all of your information go to all the other add-on apps. Yeah, Donald Trump's looking for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's it for this week. And we'll be back next week. Yeah, see you next time. Thanks so much for listening.